When we think of Daniel, most of us probably have a picture of a lion that comes to mind, and that's probably the most famous story in all of the book of Daniel is the lion's den. Some of you may think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they fireproofed their faith, and they went into the furnace, and they didn't bend or bow or burn. We have these stories that stand out at, at, to us that were told in Sunday school or as children or maybe even in our adult lives. Sometimes the book of Daniel is presented as this countercultural figure who stood in a non-Jewish, non-Christian, of course, land despite the odds and took a stand for God. And that application is very valid. And we will touch on those stories. We will touch on those themes. But I firmly believe that the overarching theme of the book of Daniel and the underlying theme of the book of Daniel is what's on the screen behind me, that God is sovereign through chaos. That as you look at story after story after story, and really Daniel and his friends are in a pickle time and time and time again, and God comes through and flexes his muscles and bails them out. And what you find is that God is in control and that he's very in control. And he doesn't have a headache. He's not on high blood pressure medication. He's not shuffling through his desk to find the paper with plan B written on it. He, he has got this. He is fully in control of everything that is happening, the good and the bad. And he is sovereign in the good times, but also even through the chaos of Daniel's life. And truth be told, it's been said that ideas have consequences. And the idea that I hope over several sermons to plant in your mind firmly is that God is sovereign through chaos. I think, I think that's a valid application for our church right now. And I think that the, when that idea is planted in your mind, the consequence of it is going to be a bolstered faith in God, is going to be a greater peace of mind and a peace that passes all understanding because we understand that God is sovereign and God is in control. That is the point of the entire series. But tonight I want us to look at Daniel chapter 1. And I want us to observe from Daniel chapter 1 and really just the first couple verses that we can marvel at the sovereignty of God right out of the gates. And there are four observations I want to give you from Daniel 1 verses 1 and 2. And let's read them together. Daniel 1 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. When I observe these couple verses, there are four things that stand out. And observation number one that helps me personally to marvel at God's sovereignty is this. God makes trusting his word easy. You ever read verses like Daniel 1.1 and think, you know what, I really could have done without that. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to commend my faith, how this is going to help me. I'm grateful, yeah, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Jehoiakim, you list these dates, you list these times. Sometimes we have this with the chronologies, that it's like, you know, I'm going to breeze through this and I'm going to get to a story about a lion's den or about the fiery furnace or something. But God puts these, these portions of the Bible in his word for a reason. And what God is doing is he's giving us historical details 
that are easily verifiable through other portions of the Bible, through archaeology digs that they find, through maybe some other book that's in ancient Near East literature. And what we can do is we can take Daniel 1 in the, in the claim that Daniel makes that Jehoiakim is reigning and he's reigning when Nebuchadnezzar is reigning and he comes and he besieges Jerusalem. And we can fact check the Bible. Right now we have a political season and there are fact checks that constantly go along with all of the debates that happen. And what you find most of the time is that they don't bat a good percentage when it comes to fact checks. But you can take the Bible and Daniel 1 and many other places and you can take these historical pieces of information and God is giving them there for a reason to validate that this is true. And God doesn't have to do that. He could have written the Bible as a fictional novel. He could just choose to cut that verse out altogether, but he's doing it so that we as humans can look if we have a propensity to maybe doubt or maybe you're talking with a skeptic about the Bible. A great argument for the validity of Scripture is that it's historically accurate, that there are all these places and dates and times and kings that are given that you can check and you can find out that God's Word is absolutely true. We just went through a big portion of the book of Acts And it's been said that Luke, in writing his gospel, and then Luke wrote Acts, so in writing his two works of literature, that Luke refers to 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands, and every single location has been historically verified. And when we can do that with the Bible, it adds a tremendous amount of weight and evidence that it's true. And I know for most of us in this room, we don't feel like we have to fact check the Bible. We already believe it. We already trust it. We don't have to historically verify these things. But there are many that do want historical verification. There are many that want to look at this. And honestly, this sets us as Christians apart from many other religions. This is what the Book of Mormon really lacks. You have a book that has some dates and has some places and has some people that supposedly was the Indians of of America here, but none of them are historically verified. I read a book a couple years ago called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, which I, I can't recommend every word in the book, but by and large, it's a good read. And he was an atheist whose wife was converted to Christianity. And he began this search for Christianity and was it true when he found that his wife was a better person and more lovable because of her Christian faith. So he begins this search and he really begins to, almost in a historical fact-checking sort of way, begin to weigh the options and is there enough evidence to put the Bible on trial and it come out as true. And in his search, he also begins to search some other religions and he was searching the, the Book of Mormon And he decided to write to the Smithsonian Institute and ask them what they thought about the Book of Mormon and the claims that it made. And here is what the the Smithsonian Institute wrote about the Book of Mormon. They said, archaeologists see no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the Book of Mormon. And that is very detrimental to their book, that they cannot validate it historically. And God, once again, he did not have to give us this. The Bible, the Bible does not stand on trial or stand as true because of what you think or because of what I think or because of what science says or because of what history says. This does not make the, true, the book true in and of itself, but it does validate over and over and over and over again when God gives 
these historical nuggets or facts in these verses that we just kind of want to breeze through, what God is doing is he's making it easy for us to believe him because we can verify that this is absolutely true. If, would you allow me to brag on the Bible for just a moment? If you would have said no, I still would have done it. So thank you for nodding your head. The, the Bible is what we would call an ultimate authority. There are very few of those. The Bible, we would say, is one. God, we would say, as Christians, is one. And to be an ultimate authority, you have to be self-authenticating, meaning you don't need someone else or something else to say and point to you and say that's true. As we wrestle with all kinds of questions in our lives, is what the car salesman told me, is that true? Well, do you have a piece of paper that says that? Is that just written on a piece of paper or is that printed on a piece of paper? As we search through how is something true, we say, how is this true? Well, this is true because that's true. Well, how's that true? Well, that's true because it's true. And we can have an infinite regress until ultimately we hit an ultimate authority. Any parent in the room has discovered this with your children. Why do I have to eat my food? Because it has nutrients. Well, why does it have nutrients? Why, why, why? And you land eventually, right? You've never outlasted your kid on that. You land eventually at, well, because I said so. And you're your own ultimate authority inside of the home, right? So the Bible does not need this. It's an ultimate authority that authenticates itself. And there have been many people that have been turned to Christ because of that. There, one, one example that I read about several months ago was Tatian, who was a second century church father, if you will, who was a disciple of Justin Martyr. And he was an atheist, he was a pagan, he was against the Bible. And anything someone tried to throw at him or give him for why the Bible was true, he just discounted it. He knew it wasn't until he read the Bible. And he opened it up and he began to read. And his own testimony is that as I read the words, there was this quality, there was this, these characteristics just about the words themselves that, that I knew this is supernatural in origin. This is, a human couldn't have done this. This authenticates itself. So, the, so God does not need to authenticate his word. It's self-authenticating, but he's making it easy on us. He's saying you can trust my word, and this is easy to trust, because you can fact check me if you like. He also makes it very easy to trust his word because he keeps his word. And what God is doing in Daniel 1 verse 1 is he is keeping his word. This is not a random historical moment that has caught God by surprise. If you look at the prophets, you'll find that 180 years prior to this moment, Amos stood up and warned the children of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, that Babylon is going to conquer you. Fast forward 80 years and you find 100 years prior to this event, Isaiah stood up and said, this is going to happen. Babylon's going to get you. If, you. if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings. I want you to see that, that particular passage. 2 Kings chapter 20 is where this happens. And this is 100 years prior to Nebuchadnezzar actually coming onto the scene in conquering Judah and Jerusalem. And, and truth be told, at this point, Babylon is not even a really big world figure. They're in existence, but, but they're a pretty meaningless nation at this point. And here's what happens in 2 Kings uh, chapter 20. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, look at verse 12. 21, 12. At that time... 
Barrow Dak Baladan. What a name, right? We'll call him Barrow. So Barrow, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. Someone's in Hezekiah right now in Sunday school. I think Pastor Rousey's class. I don't know if you've gotten to this point or not, but this is going to happen. So he sends letters and he sends him a present. And uh, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So that's very nice and thoughtful of our Babylonian king. And 13, Hezekiah hearkened unto them. And he showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his armor, all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. So apparently Hezekiah doesn't think that this is a really big threat. I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll show them everything we got. I'll show them our might. I'll show them the treasures that they could plunder, but, you know, they're, they're pretty piddly. They're not going to plunder us. Verse 14, then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, uh, They're come from a far country, even Babylon. Verse 15, and he said, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, He has no shame about this. He answers and says, All, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There's, there's nothing among my treasures that I haven't showed them. I showed them all. Who cares? They're from Babylon. Verse 16, Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. And here comes the prophecy a hundred years prior. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Now in verse number two, Nebuchadnezzar is going to carry away part of the temple vessels and 20 years later he's going to come back and he's going to take it all. And Isaiah stood and said, God's going to do this this is going to happen. And if that wasn't enough for, for Israel to see that God's going to keep his word in this way, you find that 20 years prior, Habakkuk stands up and says Babylon's going to do this. And 12 months prior to this, Jeremiah stood up and told them that God's going to do this. And they laughed him to scorn and wanted to kill him. They thought he was anti-patriotic. We're 4th of July weekend, hip, hip, hooray, America. They thought Jeremiah was anti-patriotic to stand up and say, Jerusalem, our capital city, is going down. He said, don't you, don't you know what you're talking about? We've had Jerusalem for over 400 years since David and Joab went up the gutter and took it from the Jebusites. We just had the Assyrians try to besiege us, and we were on God's bailout program. He sent an angel. He conquered them. Jerusalem's not going to, they want to kill him because he's given this prophecy. But wouldn't you know it, guess what happens? Daniel 1-1 happens. God keeps his word, and here comes Nebuchadnezzar, here comes Babylon, and exactly what God said he was going to do, he does. And we find that God makes trusting his word very easy. You can authenticate it in external ways. You can trust it because you find that time and time and time again, it comes true. But I don't just observe that. I observe number two. What helps me marvel at God's sovereignty as I look at this passage is something that sounds super simple, but it's that God is in control. Don't miss this part of Daniel 1 verse 1. Go back there if you would to Daniel 1 verse 1. And I want you to see a little phrase that possibly you could have missed. It says this in Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king, uh, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse number 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
into his hand. Stop and let that sink in for just a moment. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. God did this. God chose, and God said he was going to, but God chooses to take Jehoiakim and to supernaturally, providentially, totally and completely in control, give Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the last standing fortress of the entire nation of Israel, decides to give that over to Nebuchadnezzar. And not only did he choose to give Jehoiakim over, you think, well, how did he do this? Did God see King Nebi marching his army uh, along the shore and decided, you know what? I've got to figure this out. This guy's coming. I need to scratch my head. You know, now looks like an opportune moment to give Jehoiakim over. It's not at all what he did. Here is what Jeremiah 25 verse 9 says, and I'll read it to you. God talking says, Behold, I will send. We talked about Jeremiah, and he gave this prophecy. Here's what Jeremiah says. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. God is in control of Jehoiakim, the needs-to-be righteous ruler, although he is not. But God is fully in control of Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls Nebuchadnezzar at the same time, my servant. And you find that God is in control on a macro level. God is looking at kings and kingdoms and nations and rulers, and he's controlling it all. And he's, he's, he is the man behind the curtain. He is, he is controlling the puppet strings. God has everything under control on a macro level, but we'll find next week that on a micro level, Daniel's going to eat some salad. It's going to be on the end of his fork, and it's going to make him fat somehow. That God is controlling a king and controlling a little bit of vegetables. And you find through the book of Daniel that God has all of this under wraps. And he knows what he's doing. He, this is not taking him by surprise. He is not crying a bucket of tears. He is, he is not wringing his hands in heaven. He has Jehoiakim. He has the nation of Israel. He has Babylon. He had the Assyrians previously. And he will have the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks and the Romans and every other kingdom under his control because he's sovereign and he rules in it all and through it all. And this, this excites me. To know that our God can control the largest of circumstances and the biggest of problems and then the smallest little eensy-weensy problems that haunt us on, on a personal level, that God is in control of that. I had a pastor for four years when I was in Arkansas, and when you walked into his office, behind his desk, very center, but behind his desk on the wall was a plaque that hung, and it said these words, Eric, trust me. I have everything under control, signed Jesus. And that would be a great model for us to stick in the back of our minds. That Harvest Baptist Church family, Mark Likens, Maggie Likens, trust me. I got everything under control, signed Jesus. He knows what he's doing. He, he is fully sovereign. Nothing has caught him by surprise. He, he, is not, he does not have a headache. He's not on high blood pressure medication right now. He knows what he's doing, and he's in control. Number three, I observe this, and it helps me marvel at God's sovereignty. We see that God's ways don't make human sense. And we know that, but I, I read this passage, and I think, okay, 
God, you, you said that this was going to happen, and you come, you take Jehoiakim. I get that. Jehoiakim is supposed to be good. He's supposed to be a right king. He's supposed to lead Judah in a right way. But he's not. He's blown it. I get why you're removing Jehoiakim. But when you look at verse 2, it says this. The Lord gives Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Okay, God, I, I understand that. That makes human sense to me. With part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carries into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure houses of his God. Now, outside of Isaiah's prophecy to Hezekiah that this is going to happen, outside of that, I don't understand this. I don't get why, God, you would let this king come in and take your vessels that are holy, that are dedicated unto you, that the people have donated a lot of, a lot of gold and jewelry to make this, and you're going to let him carry it all the way into Shinar, all the way into the land of the Chaldeans, and put that in his God's house? You're, you're going to, I know it's going to happen. They're going to parade this like the Stanley Cup through the city, and they're going to laugh. And they're going to say, who's their God? What does he mean? He couldn't save them. What could he do? Look at our God. They're great. They're wonderful. And that I, I wrestle with. I wrestle with God. Why would you allow that portion to happen? All right, take, take Jehoiakim out. Okay, maybe they're taking a few boys. Take Jan, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Take them out. Maybe. But you're allowing your holy vessels to be carried away. But the truth is this, just because it's not your plan does not mean it's not a good plan. There are lots of things that aren't our plans that God chooses to do. And it doesn't mean it's not his plan. It doesn't mean it's not a good plan. There, you could apply this a million ways. Why would, why would God possibly take a wife from a man who just got married to her six months prior? Why would he do that? Why would, why would God give cancer to a toddler? Okay, I understand maybe, maybe 60, 70, 80, but a toddler? Why, why would God put harvest in, in this scenario? Why not take that Mark guy? I mean, he's, he's much tougher to listen to. Get him out of here. Why, why would God do this stuff? And you know, you can't have faith on one hand and human reason and intellect, and it all makes sense on the other hand. Those, those two don't mix. In order to really employ faith, there's a measure of, man, this just doesn't make sense. That has to exist. This is what, this historical moment is what Habakkuk looked at. If you know anything about the book of Habakkuk, which I, I understand that many may not, and that's okay because it's a very small, seemingly obscure book in, inside of the Bible, but it is a beautiful book on faith. And when you look at Habakkuk, Habakkuk, 20 years prior to this historical moment, wrestled with what God was going to do. And he knew that God was going to take the Babylons and conquer Judah and Jerusalem. And Habakkuk even understood why God would do that. Habakkuk, if you read the first chapter of his book, he says, look, God, I understand that we're bad. I understand we're wicked. I understand we've done away with your law. I get why you would do this, but using Babylon? God, they're worse than we are. You're taking a grease rag to clean the dishes. I don't get what you're, I don't understand. I know we're bad, but they're way worse. They're completely and totally pagan. 
How are you going to bless them through this? And Habakkuk wrestles with this. And you know what God tells him? I'll read it to you. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. This is what the Lord answered me. This is what Habakkuk says. Here's what God told me. And here's the point that I had to come to in my own life. This doesn't make sense, God. I don't understand why you're doing this. And he's, if you read chapter 1, he's obviously frustrated. And here's the point that God tells Habakkuk, here's where you need to get. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision, the vision that Babylon was going to conquer them, and make it plain upon the tables that he may run when he readeth it. That's like, dun, dun, dun. Like, that's not good. You're going to read the vision that we're going down. We're, this is not good. And, and this, this should cause people to run. So he says, write it, make it plain, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. God says, this is true. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely t- come, it will not tarry. God says, it's going to take a little while, but not too long. You just hang on. It's coming. And he tells Habakkuk, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He says, Habakkuk, put yourself in check. You're not, you are not upright to question what I'm doing. Then he says the famous line that Paul and the author of Hebrews quoted, but the just shall live by faith. This historical moment is where we get that, that phrase that we love to employ as New Testament Christians. That Habakkuk, it didn't make any sense. And God says, I know it doesn't. But, but put yourself in check. It doesn't need to. The just live by faith. And it can't all make human sense to us and be faith at the same time. And truth be told, as members of Harvest Baptist Church, we have been gifted an opportunity to live by faith that not every church gets gifted. We have an opportunity to prove our love to God, to prove that we trust him, to prove that we do believe he's sovereign and he's in control that not every church gets. And this, this is a moment for us as a church family to say, you know what, God? It doesn't all make human sense, but that's okay. We trust that you're in control. We trust that you're sovereign through chaos. We trust that you are going to take this, and you're going to use it some way, even though I don't understand it, and I don't get it. And I, I can't even begin to venture a guess at what God is going to do and how he's going to use it. I, I wouldn't dare suppose. But there, there is something. We can learn from all of the Bible, including Daniel, that God knows what he's doing and is in control. Observation number four, and lastly, that helps me truly marvel at God's sovereignty is this. God has the gospel in mind. You say, how in the world does Daniel 1, 1 and 2 correlate to the gospel? And here's how. Go to, go to Acts chapter 2. This is the last place you'll turn so you don't have to go back to Daniel. Go to Acts chapter 2. I want to connect a couple biblical dots that you may have already connected. You may not have. I don't know. Acts uh, chapter 2, of course, the day of Pentecost, where Peter stands up and, and so many are saved. And Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. This is held in Jerusalem. There are a lot of visitors inside of Jerusalem right now because of the Jewish holiday. So we read verse number 8. They speak, and every man hears in his own tongue. More than likely, most of these people spoke the common tongue. They spoke Greek. But every man, as, as P- 
Peter begins to speak, they hear it in their own original language. And it says this, they hear every man in their own tongue wherein we were born. They have this question, like how is this possible? Verse number nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judah. So it takes these Parthians, Medes, Elamites and says this is kind of their uh, ethnic background. Then it says here are some people that it's not their ethnic background. They just live in these places. They dwell in Mesopotamia. They dwell in Judea or in Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. Verse number 10. Phrygia and Pamphylia and in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, and then it says this, Jews and proselytes. And this is, this is kind of giving us a, a broad category of what these people were, that Pentecost is a Jewish holiday that Jews from all over the known world are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish holiday. Now, certainly, there may have been merchants, there may have been travelers from other cities, but by and large, these people are Jewish, and it says Jews and proselytes. So a Jew being... I was born a Jew, Abraham's blood runs through my veins. A proselyte being, I was not born a Jew, but I converted to Judaism sometime in life. A, a man definitely would have been circumcised, uh, tried to obey the law. So people that were born Jewish, people that are now Jewish, even though they weren't born Jewish, the Jews and proselytes are these people. Then it kind of wraps it up and says, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues and wonderful works of God. Now, this, this is important, and these dots do connect for this reason. What God is doing through Assyria several years prior to Babylon and Daniel, what God is doing right now through Babylon, what he will continue to do through the Medes and Persians, through the Greeks, through the Romans, is he's taking a very isolated, condensed nation of Israel, and he is pressing them out. And the Jews, because of their homeland being conquered, some are being carried away, like Daniel, into Babylon. Some are leaving. Jerusalem's walls have not yet been thrown down. 20 years from now, they will be. And at that point, you look and say, you know what? We're on a major trade route, and we don't have any walls to defend ourselves. We are easy pickings for everybody that comes through here. I think I'm going to move somewhere else. And Jeremiah does this. Jeremiah takes uh, the remnant and he moves them down into Egypt land. And what you find through this oppression is that God is taking the Jews and he is spreading them out all over the known world so that when Jesus is crucified, buried, rises again and ascends, you come to Acts chapter 2 and instead of having a Jewish feast with a bunch of people from this little, from this little portion of land, you have Jews from all over the known world coming to Jerusalem, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel and in Jesus, and in turn return to their homelands and literally overnight the gospel can spread like wildfire because you have Jewish communities at this point all over the known world because they have been conquered and conquered and conquered and spread out and spread out thinner and thinner. There are communities, there are synagogues, inside of all these lands. We just looked at, at Paul's stated philosophy. I go to the Jew first. I go to the synagogue. I preach to the Jews. How does he do that? Why are there synagogues inside of these random locations that most of us have never heard of outside of the Bible? Was, was there, were there missionary plaques on the temple in Jerusalem support 
this Levitical priest, as he goes to plant a synagogue in such and such a place, there was no missions movement like that. There, there was no take this guy into support for support because he wants to go plant a synagogue inside of Egypt. This happened because God spread them out through the conquering of their land, and they had no choice but to form a community in some other nation, pop up a synagogue there because the temple was torn down. And because this happens, the stage is set for the gospel to take root in these Jewish communities all over the known world almost instantaneously. And that makes me stand back and marvel that 600 years prior to the gospel, God is setting the stage for the gospel. God is, is orchestrating, and the Jews and Daniel, they have, they have no idea that this is part of the reason God's doing this. That They couldn't even begin to fathom that his sovereignty is going to work in this way. But God is increasingly dispersing them so that the gospel can take root and plant and flourish all over the world almost at once because there are all these communities. And when it comes to what God is doing in your life personally, when it comes to what God is doing in the life of Harvest Baptist Church, I can't be certain of too many things, but we can be certain of this. God has the gospel in mind. And so should we. So should we. We should not cease to be salt and light. We should not cease to let our light shine. We should not cease to share the gospel whenever we can and to have it on our lips, in our hearts, on our minds because God in whatever he's doing some way, somehow has the gospel in mind and will use this for the gospel's benefit and we, we honestly shouldn't miss that. We should filter all that, we're, all that we're going through through this rubric of God has the gospel in mind. He cares about the gospel. He wants the gospel to spread. He wants people to be saved. He wants them to hear about me. I, I am thrilled to death that we're starting a, a new college and career class and trying to get the gospel to 20-somethings. I love that, that, that we're not sitting back and saying, okay, let's just hit pause for a moment. God has the gospel in mind. I think we do as well. I, I don't think that I'm saying something that you don't have the gospel in mind. But we, as a church family and as individuals, should, should never lose sight of that. That while God is sovereign and while he's reigning and while he's orchestrating, he's doing it for the beauty of the gospel. So there they are. My four observations about Daniel 1 verses 1 through 2 that really make me, as I stand back, just marvel at how in control God is. It, it makes me, and I know that I have a historical perspective that's more than 2,600 years removed from this event, so that's easy for me. It probably wasn't easy for Habakkuk or the children of Judah right now, but we can look and, and know and, and see very clearly that God is totally and completely in control. And I hope that tonight and over the next couple sermons to continue to plant that idea in your mind that God is sovereign through chaos. And I believe that consequentially we will have a bolstered faith in him and that we will have a greater peace of mind to be able to truly trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him so that he shall direct our paths. I think that this will produce in us a bolstered faith and greater peace of mind, truly.